0: Hello, Tabletop War Gamers, and welcome to Tried and True, a podcast hosted by the Delaware War Machine community. Join us as we dive deep into topics around our favorite games, exploring methods and techniques proven to enhance anyone's gaming experience. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tried and True. Paul's not here with us today, so I'm going to be your host. My name is Dan, and I have obviously gone mad with power with this newfound freedom. Uh, No, just kidding. Paul's on vacation this week, so we didn't want to hold this episode any longer than we already have. Thanks to the community, we've recently hit 600 subs on our YouTube channel. And if you recall, we did a giveaway when we hit 500 subscribers. We cracked the next 100, so thanks for supporting our channel. That giveaway is still giving out rewards. We've contacted the first round of winners, and we still have some more giveaways to give out. So please keep an eye on your inboxes. Keep an eye on your uh, YouTube profiles. Try and make sure that you have your email address in that YouTube profile so that businesses can contact you. That will allow us to get you the reward if you're one of our winners. So, thanks. Keep an eye out for that. So, if you follow our podcast, you may have heard that War Machine has a new edition that's coming out. Privateer Press recently announced Mark IV. And again, if you follow our podcast, you'll know how excited I am about this, as well as the rest of the crew here at Tried and True. So, to help, Build on that excitement and this huge announcement. We dug into the community and we found that at the time the announcement was made, there were actually a couple people on the internet that revealed or that they were allowed to share that they were playtesters. So I had the happy pleasure of getting to know one of them and getting a spot on a podcast for them to share their experience playtesting the game. So everyone, please welcome our guest for today, Matt. Matt, how are you doing today? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're here for.
1: Hey Dan, I'm doing good. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing really great. I'm excited good. to talk about Mark IV.
1: Yeah, it's it's an exciting time. Mark IV is awesome. It's one of the best times to be a War Machine player in the history of the game. Mark IV is is excellent. And I'm excited to talk about it. So little about myself. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, a couple states south of where Privateer Press is located, playing the game since 2017, so right at the cusp of Mark III. Been really heavily responsible and, and working real hard to rebuild our community here in Salt Utah post-COVID and just keep the game alive through the, the later years of Mark III, but now ready to sunset that and move on to greener hills.
0: So, Matt, to get us started, let's talk about playtesting. What does it mean to be a playtester?
1: So, as Privateer Press goes out and develops the game, they need to find it, and, you know, with any good theorem, you have to test it. So, being a playtester means conducting the testing for Privateer Press to play the game, essentially, and prove that the concepts that they're trying to introduce or change work. In the case of gamers, terms would be like, you know, are things broken? Are things too powerful? or things too weak? Where it's balance, about trying to find balance in the gaming world. Playtesters, when it comes to working on Mark IV, is specifically to identify the new changes to the rules that Privateer Press wants to introduce, of which there are many, ensure that those changes work, operate or functional, before those rules are revealed to the wider public. So the job is the the play tester is to kind of be the the guinea pig who's taking the the theorem or the the hypothesis that Privateer Press is introducing or a game company is introducing and and playing out those rules and, and testing those ideas, seeing if they're functional, if they're fun. And if the goals that Privateer Press wants to achieve, for instance, making the game better for new players, etc., are actually achieved or not, and that's that's the goal of what being a playtester is—is to figure that out. To to be that that data point.
0: That sounds awesome. That's a very scientific method.
1: Well, I am a I am a physicist, so every, <laughs> everything is done <laughs> in science. So.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I love I love the approach, and you know we've heard in the past from other content creators that Privateer Press has an incredible iterative practice to their game development, and I love seeing that sort of thing. I love making sure that we make fine tuned reserve changes rather than drastic sweeping changes that are going to greatly unbalance things in the short term. Absolutely. Just to explore the program a little bit more, how long have you been doing this?
1: So I started. Um, I started about the beginning of the year. I've been in talks with uh, or. Been re- talking with Lauren and other members of the Privateer Press team for quite a long time. I, I've been a mo- I'm a primary moderator for the War Machine General Facebook group for a couple of years now, and been heavily involved in the community. So I, I've had a built up relationship, which allowed me to kind of get on the the groundworks of starting for Mark IV, and so I've been doing it through most of this year.
0: Awesome. And how long does a play testing cycle typically take. How long do you spend examining one core topic or another?
1: Uh, yep. So it's a we uh, we work in two week cycles. So privateer press introduces in a, a rules iteration that they've developed, and then we work and or play games and and do testing and provide feedback for about two weeks before we move on to the next section. Sometimes there's breaks in between those those week two week sessions, but generally that's the
0: structure. Sounds good. So it's like an I go do my testing, you go take that and do some internal testing, get some feedback going, and then give us the next list, like every kind of two weeks back and forth?
1: Exactly. Yep.
0: Cool. Uh, So I know that you've said that you have a bit of a standing relationship with some of the Privateer Press staffers. If someone's interested in being a playtester, but they may not have a wealth of years of background in the War Machine community to draw on, as you did, what would your recommendation be for someone interested in the process that wants to try and help out? Um, well,
1: first off, there's, there's only a limited number of sets, and I don't want to speak too much on behalf of Privateer Press, because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's their decision to make um, sure. of, who, of who they're able to select and whether they have the bandwidth or not to actually do that. If you ever want to try and ask and say, I think I'd be a good fit, apply. Generally reaching out, I think, to front desk at privateerpress.com, which I think is their primary email is probably your best bet and kind of work up. But, it you know, get involved in your community is the first step. Get involved in building your local community. Get involved in the wider community. And just try to be, you know, involved and, and visible is, is kind of, a, is kind of a, a prerequisite. But at the end of the day, ultimately, it's Privateer Press' decision and how they choose playtesters is entirely theirs. And I, I, I can't speak to their exact decision-making process on that.
0: One would imagine they'd want to select individuals that they feel are capable of being constructive in their feedback and not Correct. deconstructive. So I'd like to think that positivity, and I know that you have a lot of it, it goes a long way toward boosting your chances.
1: Absolutely. Playtesting is not the CID cycle, it's, right. it's not meant to be that way intentionally. That's right, that's right.
0: It is not a community of playtesters at this point. It is a, a small handpicked group. So it is possible to get in, but you might have to work a little bit at it, folks. Yep. So now I know everyone's been waiting for the meat and potatoes of this episode. Let's get to that beta document that we've got. Now, a bit of ground rules for the podcast. Matt has graciously allowed us to interview him on this topic, and we've cleared a list of questions prior to your press. So those questions are only allowed to relate to things that have been publicly announced or released by the company as of the date of recording. And today is August 11th, 2022. So anything that was public before this date can be included in our discussion for today. Correct. Please note, we're not sure if anything's going to change based on this beta document. So for the first time ever, this might be a tried and true podcast that doesn't necessarily stand the test of time. We just felt like this was an important topic to cover and we wanted to crack at it. So I'm going to start from the top. I generally compose these questions in a list that kind of follows along with the announcements that they have been made in approximate order. So if you're following along at home and you want to read along with their documents, hopefully it'll be in relatively easy to digest format for you. First topic we came across was the removal of facing. In your playtesting, Matt, is that something that took a lot to get used to?
1: To be honest, this is the one that took the least amount of time to get used to. So I'll, I'll kind of walk through the, the you know, the... The phase of my my brain when it came to fa- facing being removed from the game through much of later Mark III, or in in particular, so post COVID, I worked really hard to try and get new players into the game to teach them how to play the game. And without question, the number one difficulty for people to understand, get good at, and and essentially not got got yet uh, is facing problems. Um, facing is is a challenge for lesser experienced players to get used to, and it is a very easily exploitable. Um, area for for people that are more experienced to take advantage of someone else's mistakes. So throughout the la- later part of Mark III, I was realizing, you know, as you come to more realization, if we move to a, a more new player-friendly version, a, a less gotcha version, a, a cleaner game, frankly, Facing was eventually going to have to go. Most modern game systems do not have Facing, but War Machine was one of the last ones that still had it. And I think it's important to note that there's a reason why the industry shifted that way and why all of Privateer Press's other games shifted that way. Facing provides for the opportunity for sloppier gameplay mistakes that can be, uh, can be made and can be exploited by your opponent at, at any degree of you know, experience playing. And if you're a scorn player, you realize that uh, your Titans can never charge with their front facing uh, because <laughs> of overhang problems.
0: When I heard about the removal of Facing, I immediately texted my friend who's played Scorn since, like, Mark 1. And I was like, oh my god, the butt charges are legal now!
1: <laughs> I, uh, when, I, when I finally got to tell my local Scorn player the same thing, it was, a, it was an enjoyable moment for me. It's like, look, you can charge with your butt and not, be, and not actually be breaking the rules now. <laughs> oh, it's so good. So, yeah, fa- Facing, like, number one, I think, concern with Facing was, would it be balanced to not have the, the in the back? Changes like in the back arc changes. So things like, mm-hmm. you know, having counterplay to like shield wall or um, def- high defense models, etc. Having facing going away kind of kind of helped, or having facing exist kind of counterbalance some of those rules. But as as you'll see, as as Mark IV releases and we see more models and more rules that have come out. You'll notice that some things have been, take, you know, changed in that. If you look at uh, Cinerators in the exemplar beta demo document, you'll notice that shield Wall's is now only plus two arm. Well, that's a result of there's now there still need to be some counterplay. The counterplay is just reducing numbers in that's that partic- in that instance.
0: So you can't circumvent the rule anymore by going behind the model. Correct. But as a result, they've toned down how effective that rule is.
1: Exactly. And you'll you'll see that to be more commonplace across the board. as more and more rule or more and more models are revealed. If you look at exemplars and banes, they're they're pretty they're pretty indicative of what you're going to see as, as more things get revealed.
0: That's facing
1: good. facing was a concern. At the end of the day, it was it is one of the best things that have come out of Mark IV is to
0: lose facing. Oh, I'm excited for that. And I'm excited to explore a few D- Did you come across any novel strategies with model movement or model placement that you felt were kind of unlocked by having a 360 degree arc? Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it sure makes a, it it sure makes playing the game a lot smoother. No more no more pulling out a laser to say, "Can I actually see you?" kind of deals. Now it's is there a model in the way? Is there a, a, an obstruction in the way? It's so much cleaner. It requires less tools and less geometry to resolve simple questions. Like, number one, judge calls, I think, are probably facing related judge calls in Mark
0: III. Can I see this model? Awesome. Yep. Yeah, everyone's been there. So I think I agree with you that this is one of those easy-to-swallow pills. And I think that we're going to benefit a lot more from this change than we would ever see any kind of detriment in terms of less complexity. Generally, War Machine is an extremely complex game to begin with, so anytime you can reduce that mental load on a player, it's probably going to be for the better. Yep,
1: and and I was going to say, even for your more experienced players, reducing phasing and the the quote-unquote the difficulty to make moves reduces those questions in those moments. In the end, it it is a net benefit for experienced players because it creates cleaner gameplay.
0: I agree. Now, speaking of cleaner gameplay and reduced complexity, (laughs) let's go to attack templates. This is new, or, well, not existent anymore. (laughs) Uh, We've got new (laughs) sprays and new AOEs. So just to recap for those listening, a spray is no longer a cone-shaped plastic widget that you hold above the tabletop, it is now simply a line drawn between the center of the model that's attacking and the center of the model that is the target of that attack. And that spray attack could hit every model that touches that line in between the two. Isn't that right? Yep. Before we get to AoEs, let's unpack sprays a little bit. I know that this is how sprays, or I'm aware, I think that this is how sprays work in Warcaster Neo Mechanica. Correct. Correct. do you feel that that was like a testing ground for this change? And as your experience with a playtester, did you get any like clear directive on what we're looking for as uh, out of the testing on these attack templates?
1: So when it came to the testing the attack templates, so for first off, Spraygate Gate has finally been resolved. How many years it is later?
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! Is that the ten point one inches? <laughs> yep. I remember that.
1: <laughs> yep. So that that has finally been resolved. So as far as a, attack templates go, that wasn't—I I don't think—an enormous concern uh, for privateer press, nor was it for us as playtesters. It feels natural, to be honest. Removing templates, removing deviation. Again, it just improves clean cleanliness of gameplay it improves time of play the speed of the game these these are just net positive changes that just simplify things out you don't have yeah. to worry about having templates all over just draw a line between your models and i think Warcaster Neo Mechanica set up cuz the correct AOEs and sprays work exactly as the well AOEs not exactly as they do in Me- Neo, Neo Mechanica that's a little more nuanced there in terms that in Neo Mechanica it's just a set to additional models for all AOEs uh, and in, in War Machine, it is adjustable th- those numbers, the AOE values. But sprays and and that had kind of a, a, I guess you could say, Warcaster Neo Mechanica was the beta test for that, and it it's it's much better for the in in those regards. And they had enough data points that that wasn't something we had to stress ourselves too much about. It right. it felt yeah. natural, and as someone who hates yeah. late mark late late mark three gunny two, I I love the new AOE rules.
0: Uh, I mean, I hesitate to use the word beta test for anything, right? I I don't think it's a fair assessment. Correct. Uh, Correct. I think that, I think what you said was that Warcaster Neomechanica just gave them so many data points that they were confident and that they were like, guys, this is just working. Let's just keep using it. Yep. And as for the AOEs, those adjustable numbers that you were talking about, that AOE rule has changed to that, say we have an AOE 3 on my character's attack stat, that means that uh, when I hit directly hit an enemy model, or uh, yeah, when I directly hit an enemy model, because you can't attack your own model, models anymore, that AOE will then also deal its blast damage number to, and keep in mind this is an AOE three, to three models within three inches. An AOE two is two models within two inches. An AOE four is four models within four inches. So it's really easy to unpack this now, and I don't have to go and find an AOE template. I don't have to go and drift it if I miss an attack. I am all for this. Can you tell us a little bit how this about how this went when you were testing it?
1: It it was fluid to be honest. This took maybe a game to to get sense and like, yep, this works. I I I can this works. This is excellent. I can move on from it like the cool. losing AoE templates was just a vast improvement of gameplay. When you're drifting in AOE template, you know, you're subject to to your hands jittering to get the correct, you know, view and whatnot. So, it I was just a you. very very clean change of pace. It's like, well, "Oh, I missed. I just do blast damage against the original target as long as I was in range." And okay. and no more drifting in AOEs. It's it's just so much cleaner.
0: Sounds like we're pretty sold on the idea. So, let's move on. I think this is probably going to be the meat and potatoes of the episode. There's probably going to be the most contention about this topic. Unit movement. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. Uh, play dramatic sound effect, please, Paul. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> so, unit movement appears to me, in my personal opinion, to be the most, I want to say, I, I hesitate to use the word drastic, but it really is. It's a drastic departure from what we know of War Machines so far. So I'm going to break down my understanding of that unit movement, and maybe you can help unpack for our listeners you know, what, what happened here. Uh, so in Mark III, when you move a unit around, they've got a leader, they've got to stay within range of the leader, and every model moves individually as if it were an object or a person on a battlefield. And, and that makes a certain amount of sense. And I think that the way my brain is understanding Mark IV unit movement is that it's kind of gamifying it a little bit more and abstracting it a little bit more. So you don't have individual dudes running across the battlefield anymore. You're actually getting like a clump of non-self-sufficient items on the battlefield. And they will you know, reach out from any one of their current positions and then they all reconvene on their ending ending position. And strictly speaking, you're going to pick one model in the unit. That model makes a movement, and when that movement is over, all other models in that unit are then placed within two inches of that model's final position. It doesn't have to be a same model every time. You can just... Pick whichever one benefits you the most on that given turn, and that's the one that's going to move, and everyone else is going to, for lack of a better word, teleport to their final location. Basically. Yep. Matt,
1: your your understanding is correct.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Help me out here. This is crazy. I've never seen anything like this in a game before. You know, there are, there are other game properties that have introduced this, but a, 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 an at-scale war game that Privateer Press's War Machine is, that I love it for, uh, has never had something like this before. How, how did
1: this happen? Yep, so this, goes without saying, is the most contentious change, and this was the change that took the most getting used to. For myself, for all of my playtesters, when we first, and, and I'll kind of walk through the stages that me and the people that I, on my team that I, I work with uh, kind of walked through when I, I first that. read it I I was like oh no that's bad <laughs> <laughs> um, I was not a fan of it on paper on paper you your mind can immediately go to all the ways that little ways that oh this could be abused so badly this is not good <laughs> I don't like this it doesn't make it doesn't feel right like every it
0: makes me feel unclean
1: yeah every every dude should not be you know Teleporting all the way across the battlefield—they should have their independent movement.
0: Yeah, personally, I didn't understand it at all until I saw it on the table.
1: Yep, it's going to take a lot of getting used to. So it—and
0: this one took several
1: games. It took at least a few weeks plus of solid playtesting for myself and my my fellow team members to kind of wrap our brain around it and kind of realize it. And have I, I, you ever heard of Doctor Strange Love? Yeah. There's a, a line at the very end, is you know, is how I learned to love the bomb. It's kind of a, a similar mentality. You have to you work your way through it until you uh, reach the stage where yeah, this actually works, and I kind of like it. Unit unit movement will take some getting used to, and there will be people that like it, and there will be people that don't like it. But overall, I've found it to be an actually excellent change, and I'll talk a lot about the po- the positives of unit movement. So. Some of the negatives and the cons first. It, it feels different. It goes against everything that a war machine player is accustomed to, to thinking, and there there is solid arguments that it's not as clean. You don't have as precise a movement of models because you're not moving each model individually. It makes threat ranges a lot more difficult to understand and a lot less predictable. Now there's still a significant amount of predictability to it because the the model, like for instance, with a model that charges. That the model that's chosen to charge must end its melee; otherwise, nobody gets to do anything. So there are still lots of nuances built into the rules that make sure that it can't be used for some of those really wonky extra threat range charges. However, what it does do is it does the the first and foremost way that it makes things feel differently is it it makes units feel like they're actually working as a team. So units in Mark Three, Mark Two, Mark One, all are you know ten man units that. Basically, it's, an, it's a 10 dudes that activate at the same time. So ten, realistically, 10 solos that all activate at the same time and all have to stay within a certain distance of each other, 7 to 10 inches. But really, they're individual models. The new unit movement actually makes it feel like all of those models are working together as a team. So when you're charging, you're charging one target, one model unit, and you get boosted uh, damage rolls versus uh, the models that that charging model is able to engage. That's one of those control mechanisms to make sure you're not getting some wonky, wonky threat ranges out of it. And it kind of makes them feel more cohesive. Like, we we look at real-life military, you know, squads and platoons that work together. You know, they work as teams. And and this does kind of bring a little bit of that relevancy to it. Second and most importantly, of of all the things the benefits that we gain from moving to this change is it is the number one speed increase of the game. It actually makes deployment ten times easier. You know, you'd normally when you're setting up your deployment, you'd line up your dudes all in a little like horizontal line so that you can move them all the maximum distance on that turn one run turn. Now you only got to deploy one. And then you run that one dude and then you place all the others. It makes the turn one run turn Twice as fast. I I can do a run turn with any army, with any with. I can do I can do my turn one run turn with Stalingrad in two minutes now,
0: because all I have to do,
1: which all I have to do, is just pick one dude, move that dude eleven inches or whatever, and, and then place all the remaining models within two inches. It really speeds up gameplay. And it helps with a lot of cleanliness. So you're not you're not having to measure every model individually. You don't have to get a laser out and identify every model. Can this dude see this dude? Can this dude see this dude? It really helps with the improvement, the speed of the game, and having a faster game is kind of nice. Because then I can get in a second game, for instance. And this this is one of those changes. It it will take some getting used to. I I won't sugarcoat that. This is this is a wonky difficult change that for some people it's going to take a minute to get used to but if you stick to it and you play it like I did and like my team did you'll realize it is actually really quite excellent
0: I would agree with that and you know hearing you say that you're you're killing me Matt hearing you say that I can move Stalingrad around in like two minutes you know I just finished painting that army so I do I'm here for it
1: (laughs) as an an avid Stalingrad player myself I find it quite nice so
0: (laughs) that's right and to be honest with you, I have watched a couple of Battle Report re- recordings on YouTube of people testing out these Mark IV rules, and I had the pleasure of being there when we filmed our first Mark IV Battle Report, which is set to go up very shortly after this recording. And my impression so far is that the end result you're getting when every when the dust settles and all the dudes are done moving, it still looks like movement has happened uh, as if we were playing Mark III. Typically all of those guys are going to end up, you know, engaging something in generally like a line or a cone-shaped engagement, and you're still going to have this point where my infantry is going to charge your warjack, and we're all going to huddle around it, and when it's dead, there's going to be a smoking crater the shape of a warjack in the battlefield. You know, that still happens, so it's not drastically changing the end result of where that unit moves to, in my opinion. Uh, It's just making them a bit more flexible on the way in, and at the same time, it's producing the same results on the way out. So if we can shave off some time, just moving our little men around the board, that's all right with me. It may take some time getting used to, but from what I've seen, I don't think it's any big deal. I think that once we are over that hump, we will be chugging and charging and doing good unit stuff and everyone's going to love it. And we're going to look back at this podcast and we're going to say, how did we ever have any doubt? I really think that this is going to really speed up the game and just make a lot of the headaches of the minor uh, inconveniences of having a big unit on the table
1: absolutely
0: it's going to alleviate those things so you know i'm all for it and i'm really cool or i'm really happy to see privateer press you know dig their heels in and take a risk or two on these new rules it's really exciting to see uh this is a novel change and i've never seen anything like it before so right away it's grabbing me and it's making me want to play with more units
1: Yep, and and it really does. And honestly, it's kind of a feature of units now. Cuz there's right, a lot right. there's a lot more balancing acts. Like it seems like oh man, units are going to be like really strong now, right? And yeah, they are. But units are, you know, typically die pretty easily. You know, okay. single wound dudes are the easiest models in the game to kill, and they still are. But it gives them a little bit of a bonus, a little bit of a, a one-up for them to still maintain that even playing field. Yeah, it's it. It is an excellent change, and it's one that you really have to test out for yourself to realize that.
0: I would encourage everyone to do that,
1: and so would I.
0: Our next major topic is going to be customization, i.e., Warjack customization and command cards that you're you're going to have as a player and Warcaster slash Warlock, uh, you know, whatever their analogous term is, uh, Warcaster racks. We'll only talk about Warcaster racks because that's the only thing that's been completely spoiled right now. So let's dive in deep on that one. In Mark IV, Privateer Press is producing these jack kits. You're going to be able to kind of swap out the arms on them, and they're even including magnets in the kits for us to use. So, I I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but if you ever magnetized a miniature, uh, stressing about what size magnet you're buying on Amazon or going to the hardware store for, getting the right polarities, getting you know, the, the right attraction so you don't break your fingers if you get caught between a warjack and its arm. Uh, that was a headache. I think it's awesome that they're putting the magnets right in the box. That's so cool. I can't wait to put my, uh, my first set of miniatures together and I've been, you know, chomping at the bit. They're on their way here, but they haven't arrived yet. So can we talk a little bit about what the ability to customize a warjack with hard points like swapping out an arm or swapping out a head does to this game? How much does this influence a matchup? Like, I'm a Kator player, and I've got my Great Bear on the table, and I'm like, I'm about to fight a Krix army. They've got a lot of Banes available. I might want to swap out one of my arms for a Gatling gun. I can do that now. I can kind of go to my hobby store and, and show up with the army that I want to play. And I know that I'm not going to get immediately screwed off the table by something that rock, paper, scissors me just because they put down models. I think this is awesome, but I want to hear your experience with it. How'd this go in testing?
1: Yeah, so first off, if I could like since we talked about like that, you talked about the models. I just want to kind of briefly touch on that because I was able to get Privateer Press was kind enough to let me get my hands on some preview models, and I've assembled them and put them together. Uh, for the, this is the same models that are available for Gen Con, and they really assemble like butter. Like this is the best engineering I, I've ever seen out of Privateer Press for a model. They are they're smooth. The magnet holes are pre-drilled. This is uh, this is everything I wish Warcaster had like three years ago, when they introduced right, customizable guess. Warjacks then.
0: My least favorite part about the entire hobby, out of everything else, is assembling miniatures. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've super glued my fingers to my other fingers, and I don't even know how it happened. I get so frustrated assembling miniatures, hearing you say the new kits are awesome, just brightens my day.
1: Yeah, they're, they're amazing. There's so few parts. <laughs> Like one of my, I, I don't mind assembling miniatures, um, as long as they're not tedious, which is why I hate assembling anything made by James Workshop because there's so many pieces in those stupid little plastic kits. I I like things to go together smooth and efficiently. Like that, the Tyrant is seven pieces, and that includes the head and both arms. It they they go together so smoothly. The joints just function perfectly. Like these, this is truly some of the best if not the best engineering of a model i've ever seen out a privateer press it, they they have truly outdone themselves on the production staff and i know there's been a lot of controversies people are trying to understand like is 3d printing going to be a problem and i'll tell you i not only do i know that not think that they wouldn't be able to do this if they didn't 3d print they've told me that they can't reach these same engineering feats if they weren't 3d printing because it doesn't work the same in regular cast molding they have done an excellent job these miniatures are truly awesome and really well put together like the the arms for instance like you've got the holes pre-drilled they've not only pre-drilled the holes for you to put the magnets in and i I guess i shouldn't say pre-drilled it's just printed that way but they're also keyed so you have actually keys or or joint or connectors that hold the arm in place like one of the problems with magnetizing is you know you they they'll swivel around on the magnet
0: yeah the wiggle you got the arm wiggle
1: you got the arm wiggle there's little keys or or joints that actually go into the side of where the arm attaches uh, to hold it in place so you don't have that arm wiggle. And they they couldn't do that if they didn't 3D print them.
0: Like a notch to kind of get keep it from rotating, basically?
1: Exactly. All right,
0: cool. So if you're listening at home, don't clip that notch off. It's not flash. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, exactly. 100%. <laughs> so, 100%. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. I'm super glad to hear about the new quality of the miniatures. How does this play out on the tabletop?
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. Warjack customization is awesome. And it really kind of opens up possibilities for list design, building Warjacks. It's kind of like the evolution of, you know, the whole Warjack robot idea is getting to the stage where you can make your own. You know, War Machine through, through its ages has always had a set of predetermined Warjack chassis. But... They didn't have. If you wanted to play a certain kit, you had to put the exact same arms on. You know, a juggernaut always has an axe and an open fist. Well, now what if your juggernaut has an axe and a shield, or an axe and a cannon? Well, I guess that's a destroyer, but <laughs> but but you get kind of the the, the point here is that yeah, you, they're both
0: on the juggernaut chassis.
1: Yeah. You have the you have the ability to to build whatever combination you want to to work the way you want it, and and warjack customization is is pretty awesome. So it's done at the list building stage. So you select the chassis you're going to build, and then you pay for the, each arm and head that attaches to that jack. So like a striker, for instance, if you bring along the the relentless charge head, that's two points. Bring along the voltaic hammer, that's six points, and you add a galvanic shield, and there's another four points, and you've got an eleven point heavy. And then that's what you pay for at the list building stage. It really gives you the flexibility to to build your list and to have the ability to open up like, oh, I'm lacking some I'm lacking some ranged some boostable ranged firepower. Well I'm just gonna you know pick one of these you know four striker jacks that I can take in a list because they're FA4, and I'm gonna pop a cannon onto the side of one, or I'm gonna pop two cannons, one on each arm, if you really want to. And and kind of have that flexibility to to build to find the things to enter into your that your list may be lacking or you know what what areas of your list do you holes do you need to fill and your jacks can kind of help you do that. Customization has felt has just flowed really well. it's an excellent feature. I, I don't think anybody could dislike this and I, I'm sure there's someone out there but <laughs> it, it is an excellent and, and just very positive change. And there, there's always going to be some concerns about the balancing concerns of it, but having them, having the weapons actually have point values, makes that pretty much an an easy solution to fix.
0: That's awesome. So let's tap into a little bit about racks and command cards. So I've, uh, I'm familiar with another game that uses a like a hand of cards that uh, offers some sweet one-time abilities that you can do during the game. And that translates pretty directly to this write-up of command cards in my experience or in my opinion. And I've found systems like that to give you a a tool that helps you fix a problem or a matchup or a scenario easily available to hot swap in and out before before the start of a game, or or just to build it into your plan for that army. Really helps global balance a lot. Man, my army, Kador has just never had the ability to deal with stealth miniatures. Now I can get, you know, eyeless Sight. That one time that I really need to kill that, you know, that Cephalix guy over there near the objective. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't have to do some Rube Goldberg machine of activation order. I can just say, and I've got stealth removal when I need it. You know, that sort of thing. And I think that it's, you know, an incredible way to, you know, flatten that curve of really overtuned items you don't need an excellent tool in faction anymore you just need to give everyone the chance to use a, a command card and i think it's a novel idea
1: command cards have been great they they hope so as uh, similar to, to warjack customization you select your command cards at the the list building stage because some command cards will have points associated with them the cool thing about command cards is that they fill—they allow you to fill weaknesses, like you mentioned with the eyeless sight command card, or the the stealth command card. They they provide options to help fill holes that your army can do. Like a few of them are, you know, some anti-ranged tech. What if, if your list doesn't have the ability to deal with a lot of enemy guns? A couple of your command cards can help you shore up that weakness a little bit. And that's kind of the benefit of them. One way I've kind of advised people that are looking at it with a little bit of apprehension is to to kind of look at them at the same way objectives filled in Mark III. The objective provided you, you know, a once per turn limited ability that could help you fill a weakness into your particular list or enemy matchup. Command cards fulfill that same role, but give you a few more options than an objective because you can take five of them. And the nice thing with command cards is none of them are particularly bonkers crazy. These are not feats. They're they're not meant to be feats.
0: Yeah, they're nice minor abilities that, that patch up yep. um, you know, whatever you need them to.
1: Exactly. And it, it's just it really kinda helps with that particular stage. So it, they're they're excellent. They're they're very cool. I'm awesome. a huge, huge fan of, of command cards.
0: Alright, let's move on to Warcaster racks. Yeah. I no.
1: love Warcaster racks. This is such oh, a I... cool, cool thing.
0: I've always just thought if you know so and so caster also had iron flesh we'd be off to the races here um you know so so i love the ability to go this set of car or this set of spells for this warcaster really fits my play style i want to play Abs. you know balls out Baronova, attack spells everywhere you know you got your razor wind you got your tempest you got holy holy crow we can do freezing grip on every caster oh, oh. <laughs> every yep. kid or player's you know Perfect dream.
1: Yep. Uh, The rack is awesome. I love the rack. It's one of the coolest new features of Mark IV, and and just one of the coolest features that you'll get to play with. So just to kind of preface is rack is not decided. The rack spells that you choose for your caster are not decided at the list building stage. They are actually decided after or at the tabletop when you and your opponent are rolling off. Once you know each other's list of what you're going to play, then you select your rack spells. So, again, racks kind of go into that whole, you know, flexibility on the battlefield to potentially help you with, you know, poor matchups. Uh, like, take a signar, for instance. You're playing into an enemy who has a whole lot of guns, so you you take deflection as, as your spell. Or in Orgoth, you take windstorm. The rack allows for some just unparalleled extra gameplay, and it's it's really cool. It's really awesome to have that flexibility to just be able to accomplish anything. And and even like freezing grip, like obviously Baronova is the very strong case for freezing grip having Field Marshal Arknode, etc. Um, on on her card. But even things as simple as like superiority. Oh man, I have what I have loved to put superiority on every caster back in you know Mark Three Kador days
0: number one reason to run off, baby. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep. With, with that said, though, I think it's important to to address one of the elephants in the room um, when it comes to racks. The rack is the hardest thing in Mark IV to balance, without question. Getting the spells that are chosen to be on that rack correct is very, very difficult. And it, it is a, a very delicate art. So I, I've seen a lot of commentary, and even many of my locals that have been introduced, or now have been introduced to Mark IV since the announcement, have asked me is like, why aren't our are, are racks coming to legacy casters? And no, they're not. And there's, there's a reason for that. It's unbalanceable for the, for 200 war casters. It, it's, it's yeah, the hardest thing it. to balance. Yeah. It is the hardest thing to balance. It's best to keep it limited that, that in that regard, but it offers something new and extremely unique when it comes to playing the new models.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'm, I'm feeling like I have an example of something hard to balance. I'm going to throw this out there. So, you know, you feel free to do whatever you want with the comment. But I saw a lot of scuttlebutt on the internet the day after they released the Mark IV announcement, which had the overall introduction to racks and, and kind of what they did conceptually. And it was before they dropped the beta document on, on what was included in those racks. And then all the way up to we saw some cards released for the new Kador models, or the new, sorry, the new Winter Corps army. And what do you know, that spell from Kador that everyone says is going to be on the rack isn't there. Boundless charge. And I'm feeling like having global access to Pathfinder and a threat extension is just too much for Kador. Is that kind of what, the, what that lesson yep. is, sort of?
1: Yep. There, there is a lesson to be had right there with that. Like, if we look at Mark III Kador, Sorcerer Zero. Every single list that she is available, theme that she was available to take in, you took Sorcerer Zero. Why boundless charge? Same reason. Yep. There, there is a there is a balancing art to that, and uh, to be fair, and we all, we haven't even touched on the change to to Pathfinder by the way, or rough terrain, mm-hmm. but it's it's still impactful. And, and having boundless charge accessible to every caster, yeah, that's pretty hard to balance. Turns yeah. out.
0: So let's take a crack into that real quick. I actually think that the rough terrain rules that they introduced for Mark IV are, you know, some of the best things I've ever seen. Uh, There was a game of, like, I want to say Murder Rugby that was a miniatures game a while back. And uh, Uh, they, they had a similar system where if you just so much as touched rough terrain, dock minus two from your movement. And I was like, this is just so much better. I wish this was in War Machine. And now I've got it. And I cannot tell you how many times I've done, you know fractions of an inch, and it all just boils down to like, all right, I'm probably giving up a base size, one and a half to two inches. Entering rough terrain and and taking a flat number off your movement is one of the most elegant things in this document, and I want to celebrate Privateer Press's inclusion of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's truly excellent. You know, right back to when I was saying that facing is the hardest thing to teach new players, the second hardest thing is rough terrain. Oh, I have to have everything to get it Right. And what happens when you have to start having nine
0: sixteenths of an inch? Oh my God, stop. I can't even. <laughs> yeah, so... And the worst part is you've got to measure all of that nonsense on your clock. Forget about it. I I have like done suboptimal activations with miniatures just because I'm like, forget it. I don't want to do the math going through this rough terrain. Yep. And I don't have to worry about that anymore. Nope, and it's incredible. It's it's a great time saver. I love it.
1: Yep, and two inches is still impactful. Losing two inches is is a big deal in War Machine.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Like it's
1: it's not like you're losing you know impact from it. It's also to just in case somebody hasn't read it, it is a, to a minimum of two inches. When I first tested a Anson Wolf, I didn't realize that it was to a minimum of two inches, and I had a Warjack in rough terrain, unable to advance on his feet turn, and that felt bad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, well, I'm glad they've uh, included that lower bound then.
1: Yeah, that's to make sure it doesn't get, uh, it's not overly punished.
0: Right. You know, I, I, there used to be a rule where you, like, you couldn't have a speed below one or something, but I think that went the way of the dinosaur. I always felt bad when I got uh, Warjack feeded on by Denegra and Crippling Grasp, and I couldn't go anywhere, so <laughs> I can relate to this.
1: Good old body, body and soul. That was before my time, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard the horror stories
0: it's uh not ideal i'll tell you that we can share some war stories after the cast now i do want to move on to the next exciting thing is that uh, generally speaking Private presses part of their announcement said that one of the goals of mark IV is to bring warjacks more to the forefront ever since mark 1 Predator Press has been trying to make sure that players are more motivated to include warjacks. And they've experimented with a couple of different ways, like discounting them by way of warjack points, offering power-ups so that it's easier to field more of them. And now we're seeing the introduction of a flat-out requirement just to say, if you're playing at a certain point size, you must have X many warjacks. So it's a full-on requirement. No more cater armies with just one heavy. And I love giant robots so i'm all for this change but the other thing they need a nod to is that we're now making warjacks more powerful and overall a lot of them are getting that dual attack icon and they're making making it easier to remember that your power attacks are there they're printing them right on the front of the card but really i want to talk about that that overall power of adding dual attack to a warjack how did that go when you were testing this
1: oh man it was it's pretty cool I'll be straight up. This is the best edition for Warjacks yet. Warjacks feel powerful on the table. This game's headliner is Warjacks, and 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 it for is. the Horde side, for Warbeasts.
0: It's printed on the back of every box.
1: Yeah, the headliner for this game is Warjacks and Warbeasts and all of the fun that comes with that. And Infantry Machine has never been the goal; it's been the consequence. Jacks feel better than they have ever felt. They they are generally quite strong. They're powerful, they're more survivable than they have been through parts of the the last edition. Having dual attack everywhere, power attacks, great rules really really helps with that and i and i think as we see more of of mark IV unveiled you'll be able to see more of the many reasons why jacks feel very good in this edition
0: well I can't wait for the next set of spoilers then <laughs>
1: yeah so war, war jacks feel better than they've ever felt before i think it's a good a good segue for me to kind of discuss what dual attack is one of the other changes so dual attack has changed a little bit it doesn't ignore like the targeted melee bonus. So when a warjack is going to make its ranged attacks, if it doesn't have what's called the pistol rule on the gun that it's using, doesn't ignore that target melee bonus and it can't shoot out unless it has the gunfighter rule. So there's stream, and, and I think the point I want to point here is they've streamlined a lot of those shooting in melee rules. You can always shoot in melee if you're engaged. You just have to shoot what you're engaged with unless you can't, unless you have a rule that allows you to, to shoot out. And that streamlined, has really kind of helped. Like the gunfighter rule was one of my least favorite rules in Mark III because it was so stupidly complex.
0: Yeah, it was very cumbersome for sure. So let me say, I'm, I've got my Great Bear Warjack and I've got like an axe in one hand and I've got the uh, minigun in the other hand. And if I run up to your Warjack, I start chopping out chopping away with the axe with my charge attack. I'm basically, I'm, I'm shoving that minigun right into its chest plate and firing off as many shots as possible. I'm not firing that gun at someone else on the battlefield, right? Correct. And I still take a two-hit penalty when I'm firing at that jack that I am standing next to, correct?
1: Unless your weapon has the pistol rule, which allows you to ignore that.
0: And these are all things that are kind of called out in other places in the document, but they they overlap with these rule changes. So it's important to keep these in mind when you're examining all the rules for things. Exactly. So another thing that they've changed about Warjacks is that they're streamlining power attacks. So we're we're not seeing any more laser guided throws, and they've uh, centralized the power of the damage rolls for collateral. If I am bigger than you, it's a pal fourteen. If we are the same size or you're bigger than me, it's a pal twelve. Can can you tell us about your experience testing the collateral damage changes and? how these numbers the 12 and 14 felt overall and how that factored into your gameplay and your testing
1: yep so to to take a little bit of a like context in mark 3 a lot of the general like power level of power techs were, well they were always based around your strength generally if you're talking about a warjack that strength is somewhere between 11 to 13 generally 12 which coincides with the number of the power here, removing and streamlining that number to a base value. First off, is it improves power attacks for some model type for some models that may have not benefited from it very much previously, and just kind of kind of evens them out. The having it down to one number makes it easier to remember. It removes a stat bloat. Uh, it, it, and by stat bloat, I mean it's too many numbers on one card. Removing the strength, the strength stat, and pushing that to the back end where it's just always twelve. Just makes it a lot simpler. And 14, I I really like the 14 because that gives an opportunity for, you know, the power attack to be more meaningful damage-wise versus certain targets. And I think that's quite flavorful.
0: I love the the extra power that you get from being able to squish the little guys.
1: Yep. And it makes sense, like, if you really think about it.
0: I'm going Warjack Bull and get out of the way. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) All right, next topic up is going to be, actually, I want to dig into throws a little bit more. So for those of us, those listening to the podcast that may not be super familiar with uh, how throws work, and I know a lot of judges that go and crack that rule book open every time someone asks a throw power attack question. You run a lot of Kodiaks, you get to to learn the throw rules. That's what I always say. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) So can you tell us about how throws work now and the big changes between the Mark Four throws and the Mark Three throws?
1: Yep, so um, obviously throws are are just drastically simpler now. The you know, previously there was chances you'd have to pull out a deviation template for throws. Oh god. That oh god. that is that is no more. It's just straight away the dice rolling steps are simplified. It's just it's just so much better. One of my least favorite things about Mark Three and, and one of the reasons I almost never threw was because I hated that I had to throw Pull out that stupid rulebook every single time that I wanted to make a throw power attack. So now you you just uh, you just hit and you just throw a d6 directly away from the attacker. It it is just so much simpler. I I think this should put it in context. I'm um, you know I've got the rulebook right here. The throw power attack is three paragraphs. One of those paragraphs is only one sentence. <laughs> in the old rule book. <laughs> you know, in the, the old rule book, the throw power attack took up like two to three pages, if I remember right. And it was just
0: And then there's being thrown, and then you know, all the things that what happens after you get thrown, what happens if you miss, the target's out of range. Oh my god, forget it. Yep. So like yep. throws aren't really an attack anymore. You can't use it to go and take an infantry model and baseball pitch it at the next infantry model, right? All you're doing is having your warjack or warbeast lay its meaty fist on something and just kind of fling it away.
1: Yep. You're not using you're not using a throw to make bowling ball attacks at your opponent. Like the, the flavor and the idea behind throw was making control moves. I'm throwing you away from me because I need you out of this zone, but then you got these occasional like cute moves like, hey, I'm gonna pick up your warjack, I'm gonna throw your warjack into this seat of you know smaller dudes and use it as like a knockdown AOE. That it that didn't make a lot of sense, or it, it just made unnecessary complication on the table. That truly it made some just janky rules and some of the more experienced players, you know, were able to take real advantage of throws, throws, but for. <laughs> quote-unquote, degenerate plays.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. The last time I experienced a throw where someone was able to pick up a miniature and throw it their strength in inches away, and then because it was short on range to the actual target, it stopped short. Forget all this nonsense. Just roll a d6, man. Yep. I gotta say, I just, do love just the, get to it. the fluff implications of... Taking a giant metal you know garbage can and tossing it onto the shoulders of a bunch of infantry that are standing around with their eyes wide open, just gazing up, watching it happen. like go squish. That's really cool. I love giant metal machines tossing each other around the battlefield. What I don't love is what the hell is the rule of least displacement? You know like there's six guys <laughs> under this warjack now. What we need three judges to figure this out. I'm glad <laughs> yep. I'm glad if we could be we done with that nonsense, you know.
1: Yep, just be a little bit cleaner. Exactly. Uh, 100% agree. And like at the end of the day, some people are going to like it's like we're removing some of the complexity. I I really don't like to think of it that way. Like in, in some regards we've removed some of the com- we've removed complexity from the game. But realistically, what we've done is we've cleaned it up. We've made it cleaner. We've made gameplay cleaner. We've made less opportunities for you to want to reach across the table and punch your opponent <laughs> in the face for arguing with you too much. <laughs> and and I think that's one of the points that we really just kind of have to drive home. The game is, this makes the game cleaner. For experienced players, you have a game that is less subjective and much more qu- quantitative. And you know I'm a physicist, so I despise subjectivity. <laughs> Prove it to me with numbers.
0: But wait, I thought things in physics were only true if you could like observe them. Yeah, uncertainty Touché. principle. Come on.
1: Yeah, Come on. the two, Touche salesman. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, yeah. You know, on that note, I think it would be probably a good place to end because we're coming up about an hour now. So that's our last topic to cover for this podcast. Matt, I want to say thank you so much. For coming on to tried and true and giving us a chance to hang out and unpack some of the awesome and new exciting changes to Privateer press's war machine game in mark 4 so is there anything you'd like to offer our audience as a sign off
1: hey I, I really want to thank you for having me on uh, giving me this opportunity to, to talk through how much I love mark 4 how much I love this game and kind of just express you know how happy I am that the community gets this just unique opportunity for the game to continue i think you guys produce one of the the coolest most positive podcasts on the internet right now and i've really enjoyed to get to know you guys and i i think it's awesome that i was able to be here and it just a great time and everybody out there mark 4 is excellent you're you're gonna love it you're gonna enjoy it the game is better than it's ever been and it's it's truly a great time to be a war machine player and a privateer press fan
0: you flatter me sir Thank you very much for all the kind words. We here at Tried and True are certainly looking forward to all the great changes that War Machine and Privateer Press are making. And we're looking forward to getting a chance to really dig our heels in and test some of the cool new list ideas and options available. I've got my Mark IV miniatures coming in the mail, and I can't wait to tear that box open when it arrives at my house finally. you know, Stick around, Matt. You're going to get to know us a little bit better. I'm going to shoot you an invite to our Discord channel and get you set up over there. So for our everybody here, thanks for coming by to listen to this special episode of Tried and True.